NAFTA is in the news again, with Washington insiders chattering that a deal may be at hand soon. I'm Richard Miles, host of 35 West, and this morning I have with me Scott Miller, one of the trade guys at CSIS, and Christopher Sands, professor of Canadian studies at John Hopkins University and a CSIS senior associate. Welcome back, gentlemen. Thanks. Welcome Thanks for having us. So when I look up Washington Insiders and Dictionary, I see both of your pictures. So I, I know I've got the right guys on the podcast. It's a sad state of affairs. <laughs> there is such a dictionary. <laughs> and, and I actually went back and checked, and I actually had both of you on the second episode of 35 West way back in mid-September. And, and I got to say, I went back and I checked the tape, and I feel a little bit deceived because I think both of you told me that trade wars are easy to win. And here we are in early August, and it's not over yet. So I, I kind of want my money back in terms of analysis. But anyway, let's get to sort of why, why we're here today. There's been a recent flurry of reports in the last few weeks that uh, we may, we the United States, may be close to some sort of NAFTA deal. And in particular, the vibes we're getting on talks with Mexico are good. Um, I, I spoke with some White House officials a couple weeks ago. They, they were very upbeat on Mexico. And we've seen various statements from folks like Kevin Hassett, the uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, Bob Lighthizer, hinting that we may be close. So, um, Scott, why don't I talk, start with you first? What are they talking about? And then, Chris, what's up with Canada? So, Well, uh, the central issue at the moment uh, is a U.S.-Mexico uh, negotiation on automotive rules of origin. Uh, basically, every every preferential trade agreement has a set of rules under, under which you decide whether the product qualifies for the trade preference. So, rules of origin are actually pretty important uh, to the to the world of of preferential trade agreements like the NAFTA. In the case of automobiles, uh, the the existing automotive rule of origin going back to the start of NAFTA is that there's a regional value content requirement. 62.5% of the vehicle must have NAFTA content to qualify for the NAFTA preference, which on trucks, light trucks, is 25% to zero. On uh, on automobiles, uh, passenger cars, it is 2.5% to zero. Uh, so that is... Now, what would the Trump administration, if I could characterize the president's policy, his economic policy is a worker-centered policy. He's most interested in the effect of any economic action on workers. That's all he talks about when he discusses even, even policies that, that are only indirectly affecting workers, like corporate tax changes. He talks about bonuses and hiring. He doesn't really talk about corporate earnings so much. Uh, in any case, uh, one of the centerpieces, at least in the NAFTA talks, of this worker-centered economic policy is trying to boost the U.S. content of autos uh, in North America. He's, he likes the autos. It's sort of part of the industrial base that he's always been focused on. And he's looking for higher content rules. That has, it's been proposed that to have content up to like 70% from 62.5 and also to have a, an element called labor rate uh, content, which is that a certain portion of the vehicle must be made by workers making at least $16 an hour. Now, there's two issues under discussion with Mexico. What it, one is, what, is what, what, the, what can you hammer out in terms of a compromise or end rule? And then what is the transition period to get from where we are now to when that rule comes into effect? Both are important, but both are under discussion now. And the, the expectation is this will be concluded by August 31st. Okay. Um, so that sounds all pretty good. Um, and obviously, there's some other political dynamics at work here in terms of the AMLO government will take 
power on December 1st, and obviously we have U.S. midterms. Well, two elements in that. First, they're an oddity that I want to hear from Chris about, which is this is a bilateral discussion. Canada is not involved. In fact, the chief Canadian negotiator is in Asia right at the moment. Okay, while while the the, the Mexican both both current and and incoming administration figures from, in, from Mexico and Ambassador Lighthizer are meeting in Washington today. So that's one oddity. But the second is August 31st is important for U.S. Uh, U.S. timetables in that Trade Promotion Authority requires the executive to notify the Congress 90 days before signing a trade agreement. Okay, uh, 90 days from from August 31st is November 30th, which is the last day of the Pinoneto administration. So, if the President Trump and uh, President Pinoneto sign the agreement, uh, the, then it can be it can be notified to Congress prior to Lopez Obrador taking office. Chris, uh, so you know these same White House officials I talked to, they were not only sort of down by downbeat, they were almost outright hostile when talking about Canada and, and, and specifically about sort of, I guess, the Canadian negotiating posture. So what is going on? What, what has sort of brought this to uh, the, the, the fore? Well, I think there are a lot of pieces that really connect with what, what Scott was saying. If you talk to U.S. negotiators, they believed that going into the negotiations on autos specifically, that Canada had the same problem the U.S. did, that a lot of jobs that could have been in, in Oshawa or in Oakville in Canada were instead had moved to Mexico. And so that Canada ought to be cheek to jowl with the U.S. negotiating for the same kind of things. But the Canadian government's taken taken different position. And after the imposition of first steel and aluminum tariffs with the potential for auto tariffs on, on the horizon, Canada's position was we're going to take selective retaliation in concert with other developed country trade partners, the European Union, the Japanese, in an attempt to create a common front to ride out what they thought was the opening salvos of what could be quite a bombardment of, of their economy. Um, from from the U.S. point of view, they should be part of North America. They should be part of the solution. Um, but what's happening is Canada risks being sort of left out. Now, we could see NAFTA become two different deals, a bilateral with the U.S., a bilateral with Canada. Or we could see, as we had for a long, long time, an auto pack with Canada, we could see a bilateral auto deal with Mexico and then a subsequent NAFTA deal that was trilateral, but where autos was carved out. There are lots of configurations that are possible, but the Canadian government's found itself on the back foot. I don't think it ever expected that it wouldn't be at the table when all these things were, were being discussed. We used to say during, um, during the Bush administration and even later in the Obama administration that the principle in North America was three can talk and two can walk. So if everyone's talking together and only two want to pursue something, that would be a fine. But that first principle is we'd all be talking together. Right now, two are talking, two may be walking, and one is off in Asia, which is an unusual situation to be sure. Uh, so the main difference between our discussion last September and one now is obviously the imposition of these tariffs, the steel and aluminum tariffs and the retaliatory tariffs. And that's sort of the this new dynamic in the whole discussion that, while strictly speaking isn't part of NAFTA, is definitely playing into the whole conversation. So let's talk a little bit about the aspects of the tariffs, sort of at the economic level, what is it doing to the economies? I just saw a report, I think yesterday, that um, Mexican GDP growth had taken a hit, uh, not a huge one, like down 0.3 percent 
uh, annualized basis for the second quarter compared to, I think, like a 1.2% growth in the first quarter. Um, so little and, and interestingly enough, all of this was in the manufacturing sector. So even though they had good sales and service sector, the manufacturing dragged their GDP number down. What is happening in the United States, Scott, in terms of the effect of the retaliatory tariffs? What is happening in uh, the Canadian economy? And then after that, let's talk about the politics of this. Sure. Well, maybe the best place to start is there's an active discussion in Washington uh, that I would characterize as the zen of tariffs. You know, w what are they? What, why, are, why are they interesting to the administration? And there are basically three explanations. Uh, there's sort of the mercantilist explanation. The, the president and some of his key staff talk constantly about bilateral trade surpluses and deficits, and they worry about deficits. And so that, that would be characterized as mercantilist thinking. There's also a protectionist uh, strain in tariffs, uh, which you could see in some of the, the announcement of the steel aluminum tariffs were about protecting American jobs. But uh, other advisors, uh, say Larry Kudlow, uh, as an example, argue that tariffs are an instrument. Uh, they're instrumental that it, to, to increase leverage, uh, which then can be resolved. The, this, this happier scenario is basically what happened with the European Union. Uh, where, where tariffs were threatened on automobiles, which was a major deal for Europe, and a meeting with, uh, with European Commission President Juncker and, and President Trump in the White House uh, resolved in a, a promise not to impose those tariffs. And, uh, you know, the great joy was, was, was in Muttville. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, then we got something in return for that. But and again, that's, that is the example of tariffs as an instrument. Now, however, you, wh whatever you think they are, they're starting to have an effect on the economy. The first effect was pretty obvious, which was in farm prices. Uh, soybeans, uh, lean hogs, corn all tumbled about 20 percent. And farmers growing those crops, where, as, as anyone would know, fixed costs are basically, there are no variable costs in the short run. All costs are fixed. They went from a profit to loss almost immediately. Uh, so so that, was the, that was the initial obvious effect. Secondly, a lot of the tariffs that have been applied, either bo both the tariffs the U.S. has applied on, say, Chinese goods, and the retaliation uh, have come in what are called intermediate goods. They are goods imported to produce other goods. Uh, and so steel and aluminum would fall into that. Uh, so there's been a lot of distributional effects, a lot of pain in the downstream industries for steel and aluminum, and now downstream industries that use components or, that are imported uh, from China or elsewhere, uh, and they have to rejigger their supply chains, they have to qualify new suppliers, they have to find alternatives, or pay higher prices in the near term. Now, those effects show up uh, less predictably and less obviously, but they're certain to show up eventually in consumer pricing. Ultimately, consumers pay tariffs. It's, it's just like consumers pay taxes um, because corporations' only sources of, of revenue are their shareholders, their customers, or their workers. And usually the customers wind up paying higher prices, whether it, regardless of the form of tax. So let me just jump in there. That's an important point in the eventually, right? But it, yes. uh, if you're not in a farm state right now, do you even notice? I mean, the U.S. economy is booming at the moment. You know, we've, we're having growth. The stock yes. market's doing fine. So unless you're a farmer growing corn or, you know, pork or soybeans, 
are you no, are you going to notice these tariffs? And if not now, when are they going to start? Well, you probably haven't noticed yet, uh, mostly because, as you point out, the macro effects of tax reductions and uh, federal spending dwarf uh, the dollar value of tariffs. Second, these, these distributional effects in intermediates take a long time to work through. For instance, Coca-Cola last week announced price increases related to aluminum. But just now, the aluminum tariffs have been in place a couple months. Okay, and so the, this it's is a, 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 a late effect, and whether prices show up as retail is yet another point. I mean, prices, retail prices are historically de determined as sticky. That the, the economists call them sticky. People are reluctant to move retail prices. If you're selling at a dollar ninety nine, you don't want to move to two oh nine, and those kinds of things. There are there are some consumer habits that are pretty ingrained that retailers are well aware of, and so it's gonna it's a little murky uh, as to when this shows up. It's showing up in earnings earnings forecasts but not showing up in consumer pricing. Give it another six months if the tariffs stick around, and you'll probably have it. Um, Chris, on the Canadian side, I mean, I know the Canadian economy is very closely linked to the U.S. Are they seeing some of the same effects, or are we what, what's happening there both at the macro level and then sort of individual sectors? I think the problem for Canada is that it is much more trade dependent on the United States and dependent on trade for GDP than the U.S. is. And so Canada joined with the European Union and others with a series of retaliatory tariffs that were targeted. They went after bourbon from Kentucky and uh, uh, also had steel and aluminum tariffs to counter ours. Um, Cheese was a big thing. But, you know, the, the problem is that even if that does show up as consumer prices, will anyone say, oh, that's because Canada's mad at us because we put tariffs on and I'll blame Trump? It's a very tenuous chain of, of connections that people would have to navigate. Canada hoped that united with other big trading partners, the effect could be more significant than just Canada by itself. And that's certainly true. But with the European Union doing a deal on autos, it leaves them somewhat isolated. Um, if, if I were offering a, a sort of a peace deal, uh, one of the things I think that the Trump administration on autos hasn't necessarily recognized is that there is a difference between tariffs on autos for Europe, for Japan, for Korea, and the tariffs we apply in North America. In, with Canada and Mexico, we build cars together. So the impact of a tariff would ripple through the cost of the vehicle such that even if you allow supply chains to adjust over a couple of years, which they would, you would see prices go up, you would see sales go down, you would see companies that are not hugely robust, certainly Fiat Chrysler is not in the best shape, really suffering on the bottom line. Just a few years, about a decade since we had to bail them out uh, from near bankruptcy. On the other hand, we've long had a tariff on tr light trucks and SUVs. And that tariff, which is fairly high, 20%, has brought 25, yeah, which is exactly what we're talking about with, with other vehicles, 25%. That tariff has forced um, Kia, Hyundai, BMW, uh, Volkswagen to build those bigger vehicles in North America. It's led to investment here. And... You know, if we're talking about a tax on sedans, we've heard just in, in the last few months, um, Ford, uh, GM, moving away from small cars and sedans because they lose too much money on them and focusing on that SUV market. So it's, it's easy enough to imagine that this tariff, if it were to go through, would lead to more investment in the U.S. and serve the Trump agenda. But if you apply it to Canada and Mexico, it's a different order of magnitude and the effects on the U.S. economy are worse. So by not differentiating between trading partners, and this is somewhat a critique of, of the Cudlow, I think, argument. If you treat all your trading partners exactly the same, even if you're intending just to get leverage, you're not recognizing the very 
different kind of damage that you can do. And I think Canada's feeling is that it's just not understood, it's on the defensive, and it has very few levers with which it can fight back. Now, one way this could play out is if there is an agreement between the United States and Mexico on auto rules this month, you can expect a, a Rose Garden announcement similar to the one with Europe, where steel and aluminum tariffs are lifted between Canada, between Mexico and the U.S., and there's an agreement in principle on NAFTA autos. That, that's all they probably need to announce. That puts intense pressure on Canada because they're the outlier at this point. And once again, the instrumental effects of tariffs would basically put Canada, at least when it comes to autos, in a take-it-or-leave-it position with the steel and aluminum tariffs held in the balance. And there's no reason, and so we've talked about two bilaterals, there's also no reason that we have to get one agreement at the end. And maybe we have two. Maybe we have a handful of agreements on North American trade, no longer the big bugaboo of NAFTA, but we have an auto agreement, we have an agreement on, on other trade that lowers tariffs, um, and maybe it's a half dozen agreements. It, it really, it's a little bit more work to get them all ratified and so on and so forth, but it's not impossible. And so I think going into this, when you talked to us in the second episode of this fine, fine podcast, we weren't necessarily saying trade wars were fun and easy, but I think we thought the NAFTA negotiation had the potential to go much more constructively and quickly than it has. Here we are, we're coming up on the 16th of August, uh, the one-year anniversary of the launch of the NAFTA talks. And in that year, we've been on the roller coaster. We've gone up and down. We have we thought we might have a deal in May because there was another important deadline there. Um, there's no reason we couldn't see a deal in the, in the next month. But it might not be NAFTA 2.0. It could be any number of configurations. The key is that we get a deal. What you hear from Congress, what you hear from a lot of people, is a lot more support in Washington for a trade confrontation with China. That's really a much bigger and more concerning challenge. The North American issues, a bit within the family, ought to be resolvable. And the sooner we put them off and we can focus on, on a bigger fight, I think the better for everyone. Uh, let's talk about the, the politics for a minute here of the tariffs. And, and for the record, Chris, I was just kidding. I know you did say trade wars were easy. I, was I felt really defensive, quoting, too. I, it's like I was, the Canadians. <laughs> Everybody's picking on me. It's right. Canadian, Canadian reflex, right? <laughs> Apologize, Steph, you didn't actually do. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was really yes. quoting our commander-in-chief, who assured us these trade wars are easy, and I you know, I figured you agreed with them. <laughs> no, the, the politics of the, of the tariffs. I mean, obviously, Canada and Mexico know, know what they're doing, knew what they're doing when they applied these tariffs. They didn't just apply them, you know, broad-based on everyone. They targeted certain states, certain districts, certain products. Um, and so, you know, the midterms are, are not actually a uh, referendum. You could say they're a referendum uh, on President Trump, the administration, but they're actually people are voting for actual representatives in actual districts. So how does this play out? Are, are we going to see enough pain in these districts uh, that have these products are subject to very, these very targeted tariffs enough so that, uh, you know, they are going to essentially put so much pressure on the White House or the, the Republican Party to say, look, this is killing us. We're going to lose these seats. I, I think I wrote a piece on this back in, I can't remember when, in the fall. And if I remember correctly, I think I identified at least 50 House seats in these farm states that were close enough, uh, considered competitive races in which you could imagine that um, they'd be vulnerable on tariffs alone. And, you know, even a few houses in the Senate or a few seats in the Senate. So what have you been hearing about those particular districts or races? Is is the tariff issue going to be determinative in November? Scott, it's, it's, it's nuanced. 
All right. Uh, first, we, we, uh, Bill Ranch and I on the Trade Guys had a fascinating interview with a gentleman named Blake Hurst, who's the president of the Missouri Farm Bureau Federation. He happened to be in Washington. He was a guest on our, our program. And uh, one of the things, we talked to Blake somewhat uh, off, off mic, and the indication, without disclosing a lot, is that there, there is really nuanced view in farm country about the president's actions. There is substantial support for dealing with China. I mean, there's, and so the political support of suffering some, some economic pain now uh, uh, in terms of retaliation to get a better U.S.-China uh, economic relationship has deep support, and the people seem to be behind the president for it. On the other hand, uh, Mr. Hurst was, was, uh, mentioned the importance, at least for Missouri, of trade with Mexico. Uh, and he mentioned particularly hogs and corn, uh, which are both part of Mexico's retaliation for, for steel and aluminum. And the, the notion that, that he expressed was, if we can get to an agreement on NAFTA, let's get on with it. But, and we're with you on China. We're with you on, on some short-term pain to get a better footing on China. But, but come on, let's not, let's not pick fights with everybody, is the, is the notion. But, but it is quite nuanced. And, and, the, and I think the president has a lot of political support uh, because of his worker-centered economic policy, that there is, there's a, there, there is a, a, re, a residual respect for what the president's trying to do, that he gets some slack. And I think also the, the part of the problem is what's the alternative? And you, what you're not hearing is someone say uh, on the Democratic or, or really on any side, we have a trade policy that would be different. Some of them don't want this particular retaliation. They, they differ. But for this to really move races, you'd almost have to have a, a set of candidates who had a different trade strategy pledge, almost like the contract with America, uh, and, and maybe say, well, we shouldn't be fighting with Canada and Mexico. Let's focus on China and offering something that people could say, OK, that's a strategy. The problem, I think, for this to be an election issue is Trump and most Republicans will focus on good economic growth, low unemployment, the overall good times, which have been a buffer for some of these lag effects. People aren't really thinking about the pain right now. Certainly in farm country they are, but there are a lot of places where they're feeling like this, this is okay. And the danger in coming out too harshly on the trade policy is the lag effects do come and suddenly a blue wave in the House is blamed. All these Democrats have come in and they're blamed for the trade the trade lag, the effects that start hurting the economy. So I just don't see people using trade as the big issue. They might fight on other fronts, but but this, I, I don't think it will carry very many votes. No, Chris is right. Republicans don't want to separate from the president because they share voters. They, they have the same voters. And uh, Democrats are, at this point, unlikely to uh, unearth the ghost of Grover Cleveland, uh, <laughs> who I think was the last. But they may try. The last free trade Democrat <laughs> who actually lost an election to a protectionist, Benjamin Harrison. Okay. And, and and the, the election was fought over tariffs. Okay, so to a very that's the last thing that really happened. Grover Cleveland was at governor of New York was a solid free trader, but that's not part of the Democratic Party's message at the moment. And so there really isn't a counter. There isn't a contrast being made in terms that the voters would would grasp to make it a priority issue. So final question: How does this all end? Let's let's look at a worst case scenario and. I seem to spend most of my time on this podcast looking at worst-case scenarios, usually in the context of Venezuela. But let's <laughs> let's look at a worst-case scenario, and let's say that all the happy talk that we're hearing right now about a, we're close to deal, 
you know, we've, let's be honest, we've heard this before, falls apart. There is no deal. New Mexican government comes in. We, we have no updated NAFTA. Uh, talks are still in limbo. Tariffs are still in place. Um, Chris, you seem to suggest in your last answer that maybe through, a, you know, a hodgepodge of different sort of bilateral agreements and statements, we actually come out of this okay, that the supply chains and the business relationships kind of stay together in the automotive sector and so on, and we kind of work our way through it. Is that a reasonable outcome in a, in a bad case scenario? Or are we looking at 2019 in which all you know, the entire continent is, you know, in the economically headwind? I, I can definitely tell you that the worst case scenario will be better than Venezuela here. I mean, <laughs> okay, that, right. that may be a low bar, yeah, yeah, but right. <laughs> I still think Progress. we'll be better off. Yes. Um, so here's what I think of as the worst case scenario. If you look at Canada and Mexico, while they are fighting back on trade, neither of them can sustain a trade breakdown. I mean, they might want to on principle, but in the end, we are going to come to some terms. It may drag on a long time, the uncertainty be a drag on the economy. But by doing this ugly, by having a really unpleasant conversation with the Canadians and all of this, what we could come out with is a deal that addresses tariffs and some of the other aspects of trade. But if you look at what came after NAFTA, one of the biggest things we've struggled with is not tariff barriers, but non-tariff barriers, and in particular, regulatory misalignment that costs our businesses, both in terms of duplicative compliance, but also added cost. And if you if you go through this ugly and then you say, okay, now we want to create a North American single market for autos or for, for other products, you'll start to see, I think, Canadians and Mexicans doing a bit what the Chinese do. They slow walk approvals. They do extra inspections in the interest of public health and safety. They add their own burdens that have a protectionist effect by helping them out. If you make the Canadians get rid of dairy supply management and they do so resentfully, you could see lots of inspections of American dairy imports and other things that would be an alternative way for them to protect themselves. They have they have less power than us, so they'll try to do things on a subtle basis. We struggled after NAFTA. We had NAFTA working groups trying to deal with regulatory alignment under the Clinton administration. They didn't quite work. The Bush administration tried the Security and Prosperity Partnership, a whole other structure to try to get things moving. We made some progress, but we didn't get all the way. The Obama administration had regulatory cooperation councils separately with Canada and Mexico. Again, incremental progress, low-hanging fruit, but we have still not addressed this. So what I worry about, and maybe this is a criticism of, of the Trump Trump's administration's perception. They're so focused on balances of trade and tariffs, they may be missing that the long game is in regulatory alignment, and that requires enough goodwill and commitment to go through the weeds and really begin getting things fixed. So my worst case scenario is a deal, but maybe an ugly deal that leads us to be unable to deal with what really will plague our North American economy going forward. Scott? Well, one of the things that, that uh, keeps me attracted to trade policy and trade issues is uh, I have a deep appreciation for irony. And there's a lot, you'll find it all, all over the place. For instance, in a trade negotiation, when you do something that is unequivocally beneficial to your citizens, called lowering tariffs, it's called a concession. Okay? And so, so the, the, the irony abounds. But for me, the, that's what I worry about here. I worry the president and his team get their way. Uh, and and they, they, they managed to implement the things they were trying to implement in the NAFTA. I'm certain, based on everything I've read from the auto industry, that what will result from uh, the rules of origin that the administration is proposing is a less globally competitive American auto industry, North American auto industry, and fewer jobs in the industry in the United States. I say that with some conviction. I do believe the real problem here is 
the administration is taking an 80s, 1980s mentality to a 21st century industry. The, the, glo the, the global auto industry works on, and this is every company, uh, works on a global architecture with regional production networks and local, deep local knowledge, mostly in things like design and services. Um, and that model leads to highly beneficial outcomes for consumers. Walking back from that model raises prices for vehicles in, in America and for American consumers and makes those vehicles less competitive in a global market. So, uh, and I, I worry they'll get what they're asking for. And ironically, what it will happen, I think, is the companies will decide to replace those workers with robots because they won't have the pension costs. Even Mexican workers could be vulnerable to that. They're already doing it. But if you put pressure and they've got to find room on their margins, that'll be the intermediate step. So it will defeat the president's goal. The question you always have to ask yourself is, how much nonsense do you put up with for a preference? The preference is 2.5%. How much record keeping and how much reconfiguring your supply network is it worth to get a 2.5% tariff reduction? The answer is not that much. Uh, we already know that drive axles, which are a very complex component that has pre-assembly, they're put together with, with uh, hundreds of parts before they make it to the assembly plant. 20% of drive axles installed in the NAFTA region are tr cross borders at MFN. So here you have a complicated assembly where the makers have decided to forego the to pay the 2.5% tariffs rather than to comply with the rules. Okay. So, so you got to figure out where the breaking point is. So you, this could be a pyrrhic victory for the administration in terms of, and 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 they they get what they want, but it has exactly the opposite effect they intend. Gentlemen, um, I could talk about this all day, and I know you could, um, but but CSIS would probably say I'm losing uh, listeners uh, by the minute. <laughs> so um, I know I'll have you on again, but I suspect it'll either be to talk about uh, a NAFTA deal, in which case we'll call it the champagne episode, or an after failure, we'll call it the sackcloth and ashes episode. But one, one way or the other, I know I'm going to see two gentlemen again. Deal Thank, or no deal. Deal or no deal. Exactly. Or no. There we go. So thanks very much for joining me, and I look forward to having you guys back. Thanks very much. Thank you, Richard.